One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We obviously bring you all the live developments of what's happening in Ukraine, live on the radio and here on the podcast. We always bring you our big thing from 11 o'clock and the columnist panel. But because it's Wednesday, it is, of course, PMQ's Unpacked. Patrick McGuire joining me this week to pause the action live from the House of Commons to analyse in real time what went on between Boris Johnson and Keir Stump. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and on a Wednesday... It is Alibert, that's Alice Thompson, and Robert Crampton. So, uh, let's start first of all, obviously, with um, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Daniel Finkstein's written a, a, a terrific column this week, but do I think it's terrific, Robert, because it makes me feel slightly better? Yes, he's nothing if not optimistic, the, the Baron. Uh, he's saying that uh, this is a kind of comeback for... Or, for liberal democracy, uh, which had been thought to be kind of decadent and past it, both by people on the left and people on the right. And the extent uh, of the opposition to what Putin's doing and the unity uh, is a good sign that we're, uh, we're sort of more, more unites us than divides us. I mean, he's also making the point that in 1956, when, this, when the Russians did the same thing in Hungary, uh, the West did n- nothing. And because we're doing slightly more than nothing uh, this time, and diplomatically and uh, in terms of a certain amount of uh, aid, then that represents progress. And nobody thinks that it will be 35 years before Ukraine is liberated, as it was with Hungary. Uh, I mean, that Danny is looking on the bright side. I have to say that to be able to, to, be able to say that this, uh, this invasion represents some sort of comeback for liberal democracy is a stretch. But uh, at least he's trying. It seemed as if his point was more about us and less about them. That that what what this invasion has done is made the West start to remember what was quite good about liberal democracy Mm. rather than both, actually, both the left and the right have found fault with it in in Mm. recent times. Yeah, so that... He's really talking about the fact that we've been arguing about woke for the last few years and now we've woken up. And it is that sort of sense of actually we've started to believe um, in democracy again, partly because the Ukrainians believe in it so much. So in some ways it is, you know, happy, clappy, um, optimistic. But on the other hand, partly we need that and partly 
you see all these images and you see what's happening on TikTok and you think, what can we do? And what Danny's saying is we can stick together and we mm. can prove that there, that, you know, that there is something about liberal democracy that is better and that we are worthy of what the Ukrainians are fighting for. So in yeah. ways, it is very good. He, he talks about the head of MI6 who posts his support for LGBTQ History Month. And a lot of people were down on him for doing that and saying this is the wrong time to do it. And, you know, don't be so ridiculous. And he's saying, actually, no, you know, we should be doing this, that, you know, actually, we are fighting now an enemy who despises tolerance, who dislikes anyone who's gay, who um, won't accept this sort of liberal tolerance that that we've now started arguing about, but actually is, is in essence, a lot of what we are and who we are. um, And we should be backing that. So in many ways, it's optimistic, but it's also telling us that we've got to carry on sticking together. And, and Danny's very much it, saying, you know, keep it together. And that's the way that we can fight he, this. He also makes the point that nationalism can be a, a, a liberalising mm. force, which, of course, it was originally in the 19th century. It was about countries getting free of empires. Uh, and now, and in the 20th century, it's been sort of thought of as a kind of reactionary thing. I've uh, never thought that it was particularly a reactionary thing. I mean, I'm you know, proud to be British and, and uh, the, the Union flag to me is a is a symbol of everything that's good about this country rather than the, the, the far right uh, and he's saying that the ukrainians have kind of proved that that you can in, in standing up for your nation and and its values you can uh, uh you can advance the cause of of, of uh, it's not the most progressive country on earth but it's certainly a lot better than russia and the point and that's a really important point the, mm. the, the the point that he makes it yeah ukraine is not perfect yeah but it's at least on a path towards... It wants to be like the West, and that's, yeah, what, and that's why Putin doesn't like it. Exactly. Because it's on his doorstep. And also, you think about history, so that, I mean, that, the Ukrainians are actually owning their own history. As he says, yeah. you know, Danny went over there, he talked to them, they understand what they got wrong. You know, Putin and Russia aren't owning their history in any sense of the world. They, they want parts of their history, and they want dominance. But yeah. that we've been arguing about our history for the last few years, and statues, and slavery, and where we stand, you know, post-empire and what we feel. But that's actually a good thing that we can discuss it and we should be owning it and we should be thinking about it rather than, you know, a bad thing. That I, and, and I think that's what Danny was trying to say. And actually, I think yeah. it is really important that we do see this as a... That, that the fact that we can discuss and argue and dispute issues yeah. like this and statues and topple them is, is great and fantastic yeah. and that's part and of it, liberal in, democracy. And insofar as Danny's saying that you don't know what you've got till it's gone, you know, the, the, the Joni Mitchell kind of point... Uh, that I think that's interesting that that has, that has kind of concentrated our minds and think, well, if they're fighting for it, then we need to preserve it as well. I thought the most significant thing that's happened this week in the West was the German decision to mm-hmm. up its defence budget. I thought that was massively, massively significant because the Germans have uh, essentially, for very good reasons, but it's 80 years ago now, become sort of dangerously pacifist uh, that, the, last couple of de- the last couple of generations. And if the Germans are now saying, well, actually, we're going to stump up, you know, there's a major yeah. force in Central Europe and the major economy, and we're going to pay to defend what we've got, then that's great. Yeah. That, really is, that really is significant, rather than always moaning about the Americans or saying, you know, we've, uh, we can sort it by diplomatic means and all the rest of it, because sometimes you, don't, you can't sort things by diplomatic means. I wonder, you talk about uh, statues, Alice. Um, I wonder whether, partly because, I mean, there was a cruel irony that it was on the day that the uh, coronavirus restrictions were lifted in England was mm-hmm. the day that the war started. So we've gone from one once-in-a-generation, never-before-seen crisis to another. <clears throat> um, and I wonder whether things like arguing about uh, statues and pronouns is the sort <clears throat> of 
you know, we can't, in a sense of power, you know, there was sort of Western liberal democracy, comfortable middle class, everything could be sold with a credit card. Mm. That wasn't the case with the pandemic. It's not the case with the war. So we sort of retreat to what we can, you know, arguing about whether or not we should take down a statue is a thing that we can get very passionate about because mm. the, the big stuff is too, too difficult. Uh, it's too huge. And although I think with Ukraine that people have felt they can all be on the same side, that you know what yeah. the right side is in this. You know, every other argument is very nuanced, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it is more nuanced than complicated other arguments. And this is a really strong argument that everyone can get behind and can come together with. Mm. And I think that helps to a certain extent. But I do think, particularly with the young, I just think that, you know, that they have been talking about pronouns. They are, they are considered woke. They would never use that word. But they, you know, they, they have been debating and arguing and discussing these sort of issues. Uh, and we look at them and there's a generational divide. But what we have to realise is there's probably less of, you know, dividing us than there is actually holding us together. And I think this is quite a good moment to look at all the different generations and think, actually, we do need to pull together. The other really, in line, along the lines of what you're saying, was I think on the day that the, uh, the Taliban, that the Americans bailed out of uh, Kabul and the Taliban took over and started persecuting women, the Democrats in America were arguing about uh, some course at Yale or Harvard and whether the pronouns were in the right order or not. And uh, you think, I mean, goodness me, uh, yeah. in terms of the cause of, uh, the cause of uh, feminism and uh, re- progressive politics worldwide, they've got our priorities a bit mixed up there. And I suppose that, that's the point, isn't it? Is that instead of trying to pick fights over small, you know, these are yeah. big ideological you know, stuff that really matters. I think on the other hand, I'm going back to Danny's, I mean, he said we have to confront our own history and insofar as the debate about, you can trivialise the debate about statues and so forth, but it's pretty to important. To some extent that is, a, that is confronting our history. Quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, is that, that is a way of doing it. We have to, you know, we have to accept that the wealth that we, you know, when you go into any British city and you see those enormous town halls and huge civic buildings and you just think, well, we ran the world when they were built in the 19th century and that was built in part on other exploitation of other people yeah and there's no getting away from that yeah. and we i mean i'm not sure we should be tearing down statues but we should we should be teaching it and we should be confronting it but then also quite often the problem alice is that argument that conversation tends not to be about our history it tends to be about that statue that yeah. person yeah um and people again losing all sight of what the big issue is mm. um uh, but you wonder whether sometimes they just can't address the big issues because they're so huge. And they, that, that you're right that they go into these tiny minutia of, of concepts because the greater pictures just become so overwhelming, isn't it? For you know, for many people in a way. Or you can say we're just being deeply decadent, and now we're going to have to stop being so decadent. And there's this sort of slide of liberal well, democracy yeah. and but the West, the, and we need to now come together. And we are doing. I so in time we, we turned a blind eye at best, to put it charitably, to the Russian money in London over the yeah, last yeah. 30 years. I mean, we facilitated it, yeah. really, you know, a London laundromat and all the rest of it. And if it's taken this for us to do something yeah. about that, which is a kind of, I don't know whether it's modern slavery, but it's modern ill-gotten gains, isn't it? Just the people who carved up the Russia's natural resources in the 90s because they, you know, had the biggest gun, basically. Uh, then if we're doing something about that now, then great. Yeah. Just bringing some of those, uh, that's just the way the world is, things back on the table. Mm. No, it doesn't have to be. We can, Quite. Yeah. We can, we can do something about that. Uh, but let's move on, because um, uh, there's other, other things to discuss. Uh, you've written your uh, column today, Alice, on uh, the plight of young people, and this generation in particular. Um, but you, you know, in fact, it sort of follows on from this, you know, it's growing up in disturbing times, and all, <clears throat> all parents are having uh, difficult conversations with their children. But you think the young are more resilient than a lot of uh, us overprotective parents think. 
Well, it's more that, I mean, they have gone through. I was talking to my 15-year-old, who's our youngest, who's, you know, gone through Brexit, Islamist terrorists, you know, the pandemic, masks, you know, all their exams going haywire, Afghanistan, climate change. And, you know, you get, you know, the Prime Minister standing up and saying it's one minute to midnight. And it feels like that constantly for them. And now they've got the war in Europe and they've got the threat of, you know, nuclear Armageddon. So it, it, it is rather extraordinary <clears throat> for them because I remember when I was like 15, I mean, there was, we just had the Falklands, um, and, but that was, you know, 8,000 miles away. And we had, you know, John Craven's news round. It wasn't like <laughs> we had this sort of constant news being bombarded at us at the whole time. And it was very much more sterilised than news. And yet you had children in Northern Ireland who went through this appalling time in the you know, 70s, 80s. Mm. Um, and they, they bore the brunt of it. But actually, we didn't have this kind of relentless negative news the whole time. And I think we yeah. thought they'd be a much luckier generation, this generation. They are, you know, materially in some ways, some of them are, though we've got the whole of the cost of living issues now. Mm. So they're not going to be better off than many of their parents when they're older. So I, I just think they have so many worries. And I think you can get fixated as a parent thinking, oh my God, how do they cope? But I actually think they will end up being more resilient because they, you know, they've gone through so much already. Robert? Uh, I'm slightly older than Alice, and uh, I also grew up in the north of England. So I'd slightly—I would take slight issue with uh, the, the, us having it quite easy in the seventies, because I mean, when I was growing up as a teenager in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, I mean, I turned twenty in the middle of the miners' strike, uh, nineteen eighty-four, and there was a whole uh, way of life was being was being destroyed by the by the country's own government mm -hmm. uh, deliberately. So. And there was the island thing. There was Chernobyl as well, if you remember. Now, I was 86. Uh, I was 21 when that happened. Uh, that was a big event for our generation, I think. Uh, but, I mean, I take, and, uh, uh, I, I take Alice's point. Yeah, it's, it's, they've, they've, had, they've had a lot to go through. Uh, and, but children are pretty resilient, as I think you, uh, you're showing in your book, aren't you? You want to plug it yourself, but I'll give it, I'll plug it for you. Uh, <laughs> you, and, you and Rachel have done this book, which sounds, which sounds fascinating. I didn't know you were doing that. Uh, we've done a book just taking about 30 or 40 of our interviews on talking to different people who've had very, very difficult childhoods. Because when we started doing interviews, Rachel and I, we'd, we'd always be amazed at how many incredibly successful people that we had talked to um, had these very complicated, difficult childhoods when they'd either been ill or they'd suffered a huge bereavement, a parent had died or they'd been in a war zone or you know something really dreadful yeah. had happened to them. And actually, almost actually as a spur for some of them. And they say that and they say that although it is really tough when you're young to go through these seminal shifts in your life, that it can sometimes actually cause you to then just be a first more empathetic and but also more driven and more um, have sort of more resilience and self-reliance in the end. And this is all born out of your excellent series, Past Imperfect, uh, which uh, was on Times Radio. You can catch it on the podcast. You can listen back to it on the podcast. They are terrific, though. So it is, it is incredible. The num from all walks of sort of public life, politics, arts, sport, whatever it might mm. be, that, that, that something happening in their childhood is... Um, does seem to be a, a thread that runs through it. Uh, let's end on. Let's end on something lighter. Let's end on your column, uh, um, uh, Robert. Uh, who, <laughs> I'm Matt Hancock. You've written about this guy. I resigned because I broke the social distancing guidelines. Um, by then, they weren't actually rules. They weren't the law. But that's not the point. The point is, they were the guidelines that I'd been proposing. And, you know. That happened because I fell in love with somebody. Oh, the bus. 
You've got lots of sympathy for him, Robert. I've got no sympathy for him at all. Uh, this, this came out of a podcast he did with Stephen Bartlett. Which In a, this of all weeks? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and saying, uh, he uses that phrase, I take full responsibility, and that's a bit like with respect, isn't it? You know, when yeah. somebody says with respect, they're about to be disrespectful. When somebody says, I take full responsibility, they're about to try and lessen the degree of responsibility that they are supposed to be taking. Uh, he also says, amazingly, I don't, uh, he had to resign, uh, but I don't hold it against anyone, which is... Uh, <laughs> It's very generous of him. It is. It is big of him. Uh, yeah, I mean... We all know I what did... he does hold against himself, well, yeah, and that's uh, yeah. uh, his, his uh, member of staff that we were paying yes. for. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. He also did a terrifying uh, section, uses the phrase, I've never had casual sex, which is... Like... I know, I know, which would not it falls under the category of things he didn't need to know, and, uh, uh, one way or another. Alice, <laughs> um, what, what on earth is he wearing? So oh, that yeah. is going to be, I was going to say, to take you back to your small acts of rebellion... That is my act of rebellion. I'm never wearing a black polo neck again. <laughs> I mean, I was going off them anyway, but you can't wear a polo neck. And we did a piece in the Times about yeah. how polo necks are bad, but they're not. They, they can't, can't be. be bad because Matt Hancock They've is now over the black polo neck. You've got to have a neck. You've got, you've got to have a neck, and preferably a rather long neck. As opposed to no <laughs> never neck. again. I mean, we can't do that. That's Brass what neck do, is what he's got. Yeah, too right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then he tries to make a point that because he didn't go to quite as posh a public school as most many people at Oxford when he got there. He did go to a public school, but not a really famous one. Uh, and because he was in Cheshire rather than the home counties, we all know Cheshire's a deeply de- uh, underprivileged county. Yeah. Uh, actually, parts of it are, to be fair, yeah. but North Cheshire isn't. And uh, that, he, that then made him some sort of man of the people, you know, rags to riches, social mobility, geezer. And we're not buying that. Either, by doing it on a podcast run by a multi-billionaire businessman. Who actually has what well, is a genuine? He's like, a, yeah, he and, seem, and Stephen and he, Bartlett, he does seem like a good lad. He seems well, like a well. really good lad, and he's and he and he took him up on it. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton there. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Very good afternoon to you. It's Matt Chorley here on Times Radio. You can listen along on Times Radio. You can watch along on uh, the Times Radio YouTube channel. Uh, People watching in Taunton. Good morning from Ta- good morning to Taunton. I'll be there on Friday. Uh, Hive from a very wet Oxford, Greece. A gloomy Plymouth, a soggy Plymouth. Two people in Plymouth. Uh, Patrick McGuire, nice to nice to have you with us. It's been an awfully long time. I'm I'm glad to be back. I'll be in depressing circumstances. Uh, what do we think of the uh, situation uh, of what of how Keir Starmer can respond to the uh, the situation? Well, clearly Keir Starmer's baseline is that. Um, he supports the government in uh, resisting Putin's efforts in Ukraine. That is that is obvious enough, um, both as a sort of moral question for Labour, but also a strategic political question. Um, the wedge is, what is the government doing too slowly or not doing enough of? Um, I understand from my conversations with people close to Keir Starmer this morning that he's likely to go on the question of oligarchs and sanctions. Why is the government taking quite so long to clobber... Uh, members of uh, Putin's sort of inner and outer circles as the EU and Joe Biden have been talking about and indeed doing. 
Uh, but before we get to uh, Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, let's first of all hear uh, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the Commons Speaker, is making a statement. Finally, I want to welcome to our gallery the Ukraine ambassador. You're right. That's MPs across the House uh, giving a standing ovation to the Ukrainian ambassador who's sitting uh, in the gallery above Boris John- above Keir Starmer, so above the Labour side, MPs turning. Uh, to applaud. A pretty extraordinary scene, that. I'm told, uh, I'm told even the press gallery are applauding, which is uh, incredibly rare, as you'll be able to say from experience, Matt. You don't very often get uh, the press gallery applauding it during PMQs. Uh, it's slightly reminiscent as well, uh, Patrick, of the scenes we saw in the European Parliament yesterday with, you know, standing ovations uh, for uh, President Zelensky as well. Indeed, yeah. Um, Boris Johnson uh, uh, applauding on the front uh, bench there as well. Uh, we can see Alok Sharma, the uh, the COP26 president. He's got a blue and yellow ribbon. It's a sea of blue and yellow, I think, well. on both sides of the chamber, isn't it? I think, in fact, Boris Johnson sp- appears to be kicking off with a, a short statement to the House of Commons as well. So um, we'll can we take a listen to that. Question one. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, yesterday I was in Warsaw and Tallinn reaffirming our commitment to NATO and our solidarity with Ukraine. Putin has gravely miscalculated. In his abhorrent assault on a sovereign nation, he has underestimated the extraordinary fortitude of the Ukrainian people and the unity and resolve of the free world in standing up to his barbarism. The UN General Assembly will vote later today, and we call on every nation to join us in condemning Russia and demanding that Putin turn his tanks around. If instead Putin doubles down then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance, with weapons and with humanitarian assistance. Today, the Disasters and Emergency Committee is launching its Ukraine appeal, and every pound donated by the British people will be matched by the government, starting with £20 million. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Uh, we'll, do, we'll duck in there. We'll await for uh, Keir Starmer's response. It's, it's significant that um, uh, Boris Johnson, actually, he's wearing a pin badge with the Union, Union Jack and the Ukrainian flag as well. Um, this uh, announcing of fundraisers, because it does feel, you know, Brits feel like they want to do something. And, you know, they're not sure what. This this announcement of donations being match-funded by uh, the Treasuries uh, what, to the tune of £20 million. Pounds. Yeah, not, not you know, it, it's certainly, Men, it's certainly not small beer, is it? And, you know, short of um, taking up Liz Truss's suggestion to take up a rifle and go out, which has been quashed by every minister who's been on the radio since, um, I think most people will hear that and be deeply reassured. Um, uh, lots of you posting comments and hellos from where you're you're watching in for for PMQs around the world. Guadeloupe, Wiltshire, Washington DC, Essex, Indiana. Uh, you can go online. You can watch PMQs unpacked. They're your tour dates, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> a slightly more convenient uh, order than the, the, the places I'm going. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, you watch along. Go to YouTube. Go to YouTube. Search for Times Radio. You can watch uh, a pretty huge moment already with that round of applause in the House of Commons for the Ukrainian ambassador who is watching proceedings in the House of Commons. This is question number one from Keir Starmer. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm very glad the Ambassador is here so he can hear me repeat what I've said to him 
privately on a number of occasions, and that is that this House and this country stand united in our support for the Ukrainian people in the face of Russian aggression. And we're all appalled by the shocking footage that's emerged over the last few days. We must stand up to Putin and those who prop up his regime. Mr Speaker, Roman Abramovich is the owner of Chelsea Football Club and various other high-value assets in the United Kingdom. He's a person of interest to the Home Office because of his links to the Russian state and his public association with corrupt activity and practices. Last week, the Prime Minister said that Abramovich is facing sanctions. He later corrected the record to say that he isn't. Well, why on earth isn't he? Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, it's not appropriate for me to comment on individual uh, cases at this stage. Uh, but, uh, and it is, but what I can say, uh, and, and, and I, I, I stand, Mr Speaker, by what I've uh, said in the House and, uh, and what we've put on the record. Uh, but uh, be in no doubt that the actions that we've already taken, that this House has already taken, are having an effect in, uh, in Moscow. And by exposing the ownership of properties of, of companies in the way that we are, uh, by sanctioning uh, 275 uh, individuals already, a further 100 uh, last week, uh, the, the impact is being felt. And what we will uh, publish in addition, uh, Mr Speaker, is a full list of all those associated uh, with the Putin uh, regime. Uh, of course, we have already announced sanctions on Putin and Lavrov uh, themselves. Uh, I can tell the House that the, uh, they will have heard what uh, the President of the United States had to say last night. Uh, the vice is tightening on the Putin regime and it will continue to tighten. Uh, just, um, we'll jump in there, as we always do, Patrick McGuire. Um, uh, basically, Boris Johnson made a mess of the Roman Abramovich situation last week, and now he's clearly learned his lesson. Yes. Um, I think everybody was quite surprised last week when he said, apropos of nothing, basically nothing, that Roman Abramovich had been sanctioned. Um, and if you compare how forthcoming he was with that information, duff or not, with how little the government is saying, for whatever reason, uh, you know, Liz Truss said uh, the other day that it was all because of um, the legal threats and they didn't want to announce sanctions until such point they could be sure they weren't going to be held up by very expensive city lawyers. Um, clearly, uh, Boris Johnson uh, doesn't want to say uh, something that he may later regret, as he clearly did with Roman Abramovich. Um, but again, the, Keir Starmer asked a good question. Um, if at, you know, at some point, clearly, the government did conclude, uh, the, the last Conservative government did conclude, when it withheld Roman Abramovich's visa, that there was something uh, worth investigating. Um, why have, haven't the government been more forthcoming? Especially, as you'll read in this morning's Times, as uh, you know, Roman Abramovich puts Chelsea up for sale and flogs his houses. Yeah, and it's interesting, actually. Uh, Chris Bryant, who I think chairs the all-party parliamentary group on Russia, he said in Parliament yesterday... The Roman Abramovich was selling his homes in the capital, uh, with um, Chelsea declining the opportunity to deny it's now also on the market. I think there was a, another billionaire said he, he and three others have been offered to buy uh, Chelsea. Um, uh, Chris Bryant's call for Abramovich to condemn Russia's invasion or face having his UK assets seized, having questioned whether the 55-year-old billionaire should be allowed to remain in che remain Chelsea's owner. Interestingly, Chris Bryant is on the order paper later on joined PMQs as well, so we'll see... Uh, what he's got to say then. But let's go back there now. Question two from Kistama. I hear what the Prime Minister says and the way in which he puts it, and I hope that may mean we'll see some action in the near future. 
Uh, last week, Putin summoned to the Kremlin the cronies who prop up his regime. They dipped their hands in the blood of Putin's war. Among them was Igor Shuvalov, Putin's former deputy prime minister. Shuvalov owns two flats, not five minutes' walk from this house. They're worth over 11 million pounds. He is on the EU sanctions list, but he's not on the UK sanctions list. Uh, when will the Prime Minister sort this out? Uh, Mr Speaker, I think the House should be proud of what we have done already. And, and, and I, can, I can tell him uh, that uh, the, there is more to be done. And thanks to the powers that... Uh, this House and this Government has taken, uh, we can sanction any individual, any company uh, connected, uh, connected with the Putin regime. And this Government was uh, amongst the first in Europe to, to ban Aeroflot, uh, Mr Speaker, from our skies. Uh, this Government led, led the way last week in banning uh, the use of SWIFT, Mr Speaker. And, 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 and if he talked to, to all, any of our European partners, uh, he would uh, understand the, the leading role the UK has already played and the impact, the impact that those sanctions are already having in Moscow. And as I've, as I've told him, the squeeze is growing and it will continue to grow on the Putin regime. Um, it, it feels like we might have a, a, a series of questions from Keir Starmer where he asks specifics about individuals, which Boris Johnson has said he can't comment on, not least because, given his mess he got into last week, if he were to do that, then he potentially opens up legal problems. What, but but there, there is a genuine question, isn't there, why Britain has been behind it, the EU and the US when it comes to sanctioning some people? Yes, yeah, and... Uh, you know, regardless of whether Boris Johnson can or can't comment, well, you know, given that he's speaking under parliamentary privilege, he can say whatever the hell he likes about whoever. Um, but regardless, w whether for operational reasons or not, Boris Johnson doesn't want to, um, you know, shoot his mouth off. The, the underlying point, as you say, is a very valid one. And Keir Starmer isn't alone in, in this respect. It's quite canny politics. Um, plenty of Tory MPs have been calling for action on this for months, long before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. So I think it's a question that will strike a chord across the House and with the wider public. Um, and for Boris Johnson to say, oh, you know, we're leaving the world in sanctions, the vice is tightening, manifestly, it isn't. And also, I mean, there's a case for saying uh, that the time for, for tightening has passed. Has uh, long passed. Just, just, you know, why is it not the full... Uh, the full hit right now. Just one other political development in the last uh, few minutes. We've been uh, reporting all morning that the International Paralympic Committee has said that Russian and Belarusian athletes uh, will be able to take part in the Paralympics, but as neutrals. Uh, well, in the last few minutes, Nadine Doris, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, has said, I'm extremely disappointed in the IPC. This is the wrong decision. I call on them to urgently reconsider. They must join the rest of the world in condemning this barbaric invasion by banning Russian and Belarusian athletes from competing. Uh, Nadine Doris goes on, we will consider the full range of options in protest of this decision in consultation with UK Sport and the British Paralympic Association. She's also going to be meeting international counterparts this week to discuss how we can respond collectively. So uh, Nadine Doris uh, condemning uh, the International Paralympic Committee for not expelling Russian and Belarusian athletes from the Paralympic Games which are due to get underway this week. It's possible that may come up uh, during PMQs. Uh, let's go back to things. question number three from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer. Uh, Mr Speaker, I support the measures that have been taken so far. Uh, the ownership of Shuvalov's flats is registered under Sova Real Estate, which is actually owned by Shuvalov and his wife. 
We only know which oligarch lurks beneath that shell company because of the information obtained and disclosed by Alexei Navalny. Navalny, of course, was poisoned by the Russian state and he now sits in a Putin jail. Transparency is essential to rooting out corruption. It should be built into our law, but it's not. And I'm ashamed that we only know about Shuvalov's Westminster flats because a dissident risked his life. Is the Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I, I repeat uh, that the, the UK, uh, of course, uh, is doing everything that we can to expose ill-gotten uh, Russian loot. And this has been something that uh, we've been working on for a, a long time. That We actually were the first to impose sanctions on those who, uh, poisoned, uh, who are guilty for the poisoning of Alexei Navalny that he mentions. But what we are bringing forward now is, is the exposure of the ownership of properties in London in a, uh, and across the whole of the UK in a way that has not been possible before and uh, that I believe will continue to tighten the noose around Putin's regime. But be in no doubt, it was the UK, uh, Mr Speaker, that led the way on putting sanctions on the Russian Central Bank, uh, on putting sanctions on Russian banks altogether, and, and, and I'm afraid uh, that we're still out in advance of, of several of our friends and partners. We want them to go further. I believe that they will, and we will continue to put pressure, Mr. Speaker, uh, ineluctable pressure on the Putin regime. It's interesting. Um, uh, somebody's posted a comment on the YouTube channel. You can go online to Times, uh, watch along uh, PMQs Unpacked on, t on uh, the Times Radio YouTube channel. Um, uh, someone has said, uh, oh, I've lost it now. Oh, yeah, here we are. Chris says, How can uh, what have we done been an answer to what are you going to do? This sort of, the conversation is slightly happening in power, isn't, isn't it? Keir Starmer is saying, why aren't you doing this? And Boris Johnson just says what he has done. Yes, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, a common Boris Johnson tactic, isn't it? You, you know, you can transpose the basic sort of rhetorical exchange here to anything they were saying on COVID, right? You know, it's a classic Boris Johnson to point at his achievements rather than engage with the substantive criticism yeah. of what he ought to be doing. Um, he still hasn't answered the, answered the question, and indeed... Is now saying something that is sort of manifestly untrue when you compare what the EU announced yesterday, plenty of UK-based oligarchs on this list, and the uh, very aggressive language we heard from Joe Biden in Congress yesterday. For Boris Johnson to talk about being ahead of the rest of the West doesn't really cut it anymore, does it? And it's such a Boris Johnson thing to do, to want to say that we are the best rather than just getting on with it. Um, it was interesting as well, um, Keir Starmer citing Alexei Navalny, of course, the jailed uh, Kremlin critic. This morning, he's been posting on Twitter, uh, urging Russians to stage daily protests against Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, writing on Twitter, I cannot, will not, and will not be silent. Watching how the pseudo-historical nonsense about the events of 100 years ago became an excuse for Russians to kill Ukrainians and those defending themselves to kill Russians. Putin is not Russia. We cannot wait any longer. Whoever you are in Russia, Belarus or on the other side of the planet, go to the main square of your city every weekday and at 2pm on weekends and holidays. Uh, so that's uh, Alexei Navalny posting on, uh, on Twitter uh, this morning. Uh, Keir Star Starmer raising him in uh, question number three. Let's go back to the House of Commons now. PMQ's unpacked. This is question number four. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister refers to the long overdue economic crime bill, which, to be clear, we support and will vote through on Monday with speed. The key plank to that bill is a register of who truly owns property in the United Kingdom. But it doesn't come into force for existing owners like Shuvalov until 18 months after the bill passes. 
At best, that's autumn 2023. Far too long for the Ukrainian people. Why are we giving Putin's cronies 18 months to quietly launder their money out of the UK property market and into another safe haven? Mr. Speaker, the impact of what the UK is doing, uh, and which, and the impact of the, and I think the whole House should be proud of what we have done because we have, we have led the way on this. We led the way on SWIFT, we led the way on Aeroflot, we led the way on freezing the assets of banks. And, and, and if, you, if you ask about the speed of results, Mr. Speaker, I can tell him that on Thursday, the Russian stock market fell by $250 billion worth of assets that were wiped off. Uh, the, ruble, uh, fell, the ruble fell by about 40%. We're now in the third day, Mr. Speaker, in which the Russian stock market has not been able to open. That is thanks to the package of global sanctions, of world, of Western sanctions, that the UK has led in enforcing on the Putin regime. And I think uh, he should acknowledge that. Well, I think Keir Starmer has acknowledged that, hasn't he? He's just saying it's not enough. Yes, and it'll be interesting to see where he goes with his fourth and fifth uh, and sixth questions, whether he is willing, and I think he is because he, this is the, the golden thread that ties it all together um, in terms of a, a Labour's broader electoral message. It's the why. You know, we're talking about the what now, i.e. Boris Johnson's laggardly action on sanctions. Keir Starmer will now say the why at some point, which is... That's because, you know, your economic model requires the city to um, be butler to any, um, you know, any of the world's despots or oligarchs. And because your party is up to its eyeballs in what we might, um, you know, broadly call Russian money in scare quotes. And I suppose that's, that so far it's been Keir Starmer who's taking the sort of consensual line and Boris Johnson just a, a hint there of uh, some politics coming into it. Uh, let's go back then. This is then question number five from Keir Starmer. I have acknowledged it, and I do again. What I'm offering is support to speed this up. Yes. On Monday, the Prime Minister knows he has the House with him when this economic crime bill goes through. We could do this on Monday at speed, and I think the whole House would welcome that. So it's an invitation to work together, Prime Minister. Uh, the Business Department published a white paper this week. It rightly sets out that the UK's company's register is being exploited to further the interests of the UK's enemies, to help them move stolen money into the West. But the same department, on the very same day, published an economic crime bill which did nothing to address this, leaving Companies House untouched and still exploited. So will the Prime Minister work with us to amend the bill on Monday to include the most basic reforms like identity checks for directors? As I've said, Mr Speaker, we are bringing forward at, uh, uh, an accelerated pace measures to whip aside the veil of anonymity of those who own assets in this country and, uh, and those who own property in this country. And furthermore, Mr Speaker, we are going to be publishing uh, a list of all those, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, who, are, uh, who are, have assets that are, that are related to the Putin regime. I'm delighted by the support uh, that the Right Honourable Gentleman is offering. Uh, if we can work together uh, to make sure that we strengthen and accelerate the package, then all the better. Again, I'm not sure that was totally an answer. So we should have, expect, we should have explained it before. This um, economic uh, crime bill, uh, all sides are basically planning to, to rush through Parliament it's, you know, in, a, in a single day, I think, on Monday. Uh, but Keir, clearly Keir Starmer wants, to, Keir Starmer wants to, to, to toughen it up. Well, for Tory MPs, this, this conversation is happening in the wrong tense. Um, 
Tory MPs have been agitating for this piece of legislation to be introduced again for months and months and months and months. Before the invasion, you have people like Tom Tugendhat, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, saying, where is this? It's been in the works for over a year. What is it about this government and this Prime Minister, um, be it incompetence or something more nefarious, that means this key plank of our legislative, legislative agenda, and a key piece of legislation for national security, is nowhere to be seen? Um, so... You know, regardless of whether Boris Johnson is saying, oh, we will in due course do this, even if the legislation is rushed forward, again, doesn't deal with the substantive criticism and rather undermines the argument he was, he's been making all afternoon, which is the UK is a world leader in clobbering uh, the Kremlin and its, uh, and its oligarch allies. It's interesting. He says he's going to publish a list of all of those who have assets that are related to the Putin regime without necessarily any promise to do anything about it, necessarily. But also, a list. but also, w- w- where, when, you know, yeah. because... Well, when's a key question. I mean, if it's into next week, we'll be up, you know, nearly two weeks after the But But, but also, invasion. you know, the, if, if the issue, as Liz Truss was alluding to earlier in the week, is that um, the very expensive lawyers uh, the oligarchs are employing means we can't sanction them as quickly as other jurisdictions have, unless the government is willing to, as uh, Labour MP Chris Bryant suggested yesterday, do this all in the chamber daily if necessary, under parliamentary privilege, then they, what's going to happen next week in, in a fortnight, fortnight's time when nothing has happened? Are they just going to say, oh, sorry, legal issues? You know, I think we're well past the point, as we said earlier, where um, the time for talking about doing things in due course is going to, you know, cut any ice. Uh, several people posting comments on the uh, Times Radio YouTube channel as well, making the point that Boris Johnson's prevarication on this is happening with the Ukrainian ambassador sitting in the gallery looking down. You know, he's had that, you know, round of applause is very nice, but presumably rather there was uh, some more action. They're asking for, you know, more weapons and a no-fly zone, not, not, you know, Vladimir Putin and Roman Abramovich's children's, you know, ponies or whatever. Uh, well, let's go. I think this is the, uh, the last question, then. This is now question number six. As PMQ's unpacked, it's question number six from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, we will work in that spirit and bring forward amendments on Monday to try and achieve all the ends that I've identified in these questions. And I think this can be voted through on Monday at speed with the full support of the House. And I'm very pleased that we can show that unity with the Ambassador here watching us. In this week of darkness, we have seen glimmers of hope in the resolve of Ukraine, in the unity of our allies and in the bravery of Russian protesters. They remind us that the Russian people are not our enemy. They are the victims of thieves who've stolen their wealth and stolen their chance of democracy. For too long, Britain has been a safe haven for stolen money. Putin thinks that we're too corrupted to do the right thing and put an end to it. Does the Prime Minister agree? that this House and this country stands united in our support for Ukraine, and now is the time to sanction every oligarch and crack open every shell company so we can prove Putin wrong. Uh, yes, Mr Speaker, and that, that's why this government has brought forward the unprecedented uh, measures that, uh, that we have. And I know that, uh, and I know that uh, the whole House will, will agree with me that nothing, nothing we do in rooting out corruption and corrupt money in, in London or any other capital should for one minute, and I want to agree with him very strongly, should for one minute distract from where the true blame for this crisis lies, which is wholly and exclusively and entirely with Vladimir Putin and, and, his, and his regime.
and, I can, and I'm glad that the, uh, the benches opposite are resolved as we are that Putin must fail in his venture uh, and that, uh, that we must ensure, uh, Mr Speaker, that we protect a sovereign, free and independent Ukraine. And that is what we are going to do. And with the unity of this House, Mr Speaker, with the continued heroism, with the continued heroism and resolve of the Ukrainian people, which is so amazing that we've seen over the last few days, and with the unity of the West that we are seeing, which I think has also taken aback President Putin, I've no doubt at all, Mr Speaker, that he will fail and that we will succeed in protecting Ukraine. He'll perish. Uh, well, that's the, um, that felt like both of them trying to deliver the, the, the clip for the news there, as sort of, you know, after some quite technical detailed questions from Keir Starmer. Once again, and he, he keeps describing as, you know, a dark, dark moment, glimmers of hope, um, uh, but again, putting pressure on the Prime Minister to go further, uh, to sanction every oligarch and crack open every shell company uh, to prove Putin wrong. Yep, and that's a high old bar. And it's not surprising there was a noticeable, even by Boris Johnson's sort of juddering standards, there was a noticeable hesitation in his voice. Because he knows, and uh, Danny Street know, the Treasury know, that sanctioning people up to the eyeballs, as Keir Starmer is demanding, um, means a reckoning with the way the British economy and its service sector um, and the third-rate public schools that so many Conservative MPs, uh, you know, attended and, and hold dear, um, means, it means a reckoning that will, you know, will, will bankrupt swathes of the British economy. And, you know, clearly the pressure isn't just coming from the Labour Party. Sajid Javid in Cabinet yesterday said we needed to take on the white-collar collaborators, but there is a reason, and you don't have to be a... Um, you know, the sort of person with FBP in their Twitter handle or, um, you know, uh, someone who deals exclusively in 25-part Twitter threads to believe this, it's incredibly difficult for a country whose economy works in the way uh, we've configured ours. Um, And, you know, that's why Keir Starmer can speak with an assurance that is escaping Boris Johnson as much as he is attempting to project himself, um, not entirely baselessly, as the person spearheading a uh, united western response uh, loads and loads and loads of comments about this on the uh, on the youtube channel uh femi says um uh matt why do you keep on being relentlessly partial in your commentary by repeating ad nauseum that we the uk are behind in sanctioning certain oligarchs or russian assets well because we are yeah that's that's why it's not a partial point that's just a factual point if you look at the list of people who the eu and the us have sanctioned uh how many is it we've now is it eight named people eight um none of whom um, or maybe only one of whom, I can't remember which, um, I'm sure uh, YouTube commenters will correct us on this, have significant UK assets. And that, what, and in which case, what, what's the point? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, when just posting can we be objective, please? That is an objective fact that there are more people who have been sanctioned by the EU. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable criticism of the government. The Prime Minister can't say we're leading the world if other parts of the world are, are, have factually, numerically... Done more. And, and if the government, you know, wants to say um, these are the people we are going to sanction, or these are the people who are on our list, say it. You can't, you know, you can't sit stand up in the House of Commons and say there are legal issues. That's the whole point of parliamentary privilege. Say what you like. Yeah, and we should do it, but just to explain to people uh, when we talk about that because we've had. I think Bob Seeley, Conservative MP, mm-hmm. Dame Margaret Hodge as well. I think Chris Bryant too. Just explain to people when we talk about parliamentary privilege, what are we talking about? Well, it's the right of any MP to say what they like in the Commons or Lords Chamber without the threat of legal action. It's a very important principle that no amount of 
money or coercion should stop MPs being able to speak freely about whomever or whatever they like in uh, the legislature. Um, and that's why, you know, you have... And, and, we, and we, as a result, hacks, can report it freely. That's why, you know, you saw... Um, uh, Peter Hayne named Philip Green as the uh, as the as a, the business magnate who was uh, subject to allegations of harassment um, when John Hemming, the Liberal Democrat MP, broke Ryan Giggs's super injunction um, about a decade ago. Um, you know, really important principle, and it's never been as uh, politically charged and useful for the government or indeed enterprising MPs like Chris Bryant and Bob Seeley as it has been now. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. Listener.